Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we're chatting with Elizabeth Kelly, criminal defense lawyer specializing in representing people with mental disabilities. And Elizabeth is also involved in a host of other activities with the ABA. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us about some of those other roles that you serve in the ABA? Thank you, Emily. It's good to be here. One of the activities I'm most proud of is that along with Cliff Sloan, a partner at the law firm of Skadden Arps, I co-chair the ARCS National Center for Criminal Justice and Disability. And this is an organization that tries to educate all members of the criminal justice community about the disproportionately high number of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are justice involved. So we work with educating judges, prosecutors, criminal defense lawyers, probation officers, as well as victims and families and the accused about how to best serve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as to educate them. So we're speaking with Elizabeth today because I, like many of you, I'm sure, hear mental illness come up in the news often. This is also, as I was chatting with Elizabeth, we discovered the same intro that's in her book is that the topic gets elevated when we hear about mass shootings a lot. That is part of the problem that people are pointing to is mental illness. We need to do something about mental illness. And it, it's not solely mental illness that Elizabeth covers in her practice and and in this book that she has edited. But it is something that has elevated the topic and has brought many of us to the question that if mental illness is this pervasive problem, what are we going to do to address it? And so we're speaking with Elizabeth to talk to where the intersection is of mental illness and the criminal justice system. And so, Elizabeth, help us understand first some of those terms that you use to define the work that you do. Sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, I am very deliberate about terminology. My global term, if you will, is mental disabilities. And I use this to signify not only people with mental illness like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, traumatic syndrome, but also people with intellectual and developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorder, what used to be called but is no longer called mental retardation, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You talked about mass shootings as provoking conversation about mental disabilities and in particular mental illness. And you are spot on, Emily. Every time we have a tragedy like Aurora or Sandy Hook, we become very concerned about the perpetrators of those incidents. And we wonder, how could someone not have seen this coming? Why did someone not intervene? 
gain in the process. But unfortunately, as a society, our attention spans are very, very short. So after these tragedies, we go back to other matters. And we don't have the sustained conversation that we need to have about preventing these incidents of violence, as well as providing solutions. And I also should add a footnote to what I just said, and that is people with mental illness, if they are properly treated, if they have the appropriate support, that is to say, sufficient and proper medication, should they need medication, should they need therapy, as well as access to all of the other things that are required for survival, like food, housing, reliable transportation, employment, if possible, all of those things that make a healthy, productive human being, if they don't have those things, then we may very well have, well, if they, if people do have access to, to all of these support services, then they can be productive and law-abiding and nonviolent. And if they don't, tragedy sometimes happens. Mm-hmm. And so... Like you just said, sometimes tragedy does happen or just a a smaller infraction that gets someone with a mental disability into the criminal justice system. And what we've been seeing discussed is now what what can we do to really address the issue here? Because it's not necessarily an individual that has consciously made a choice to violate the law and disregard the law. There is an issue of competency and sanity that comes up. And that's something that you address in your book as well. So I'd like for you to first help us understand competency and sanity. And then let's speak to some of those alternatives that are being discussed. Sure. The first two chapters in my book deal with competency as well as sanity, and both of those chapters are written by Dr. Eric Drogan. Very generally speaking, competency is the ability for someone to understand the nature of the legal proceedings, the charge against him or her. Sanity, on the other hand, or responsibility, is taking a snapshot of that person's brain at the time the person committed or is alleged to have committed the offense in question. Some of our listeners who are attorneys may remember in law school, we had to memorize the various definitions in different jurisdictions of sanity or responsibility. Competency is basically a uniform standard across the country. Sanity, however, has some variation from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But some of the solutions that are put forward in order to deal with the disproportionately high number of people with mental disabilities involved in the criminal justice system are problem-solving courts like veterans courts, mental health courts, and also 
what this book intends to do, that is to say, educate the criminal defense community. And we're also trying to educate, more broadly speaking, all the stakeholders in the criminal justice system, judges, prosecutors, probation officers, law enforcement corrections officers about how to properly and humanely deal with this population so they will not be a danger to themselves as well as to the community. So you mentioned problem-solving courts. What does that look like? What are these courts doing that's different than the regular court? The two chapters in the book are written by people who are experts in this field. The chapter on mental health courts is written by Jennifer Johnson, who for many, many years was the head of the mental health court in San Francisco County. And the chapter on veterans courts is written by Professor Julie Baldwin, who is one of this country's foremost authorities on that subject. Mental health courts and veterans courts are intended to divert people out of the traditional courtroom experience. And again, these courts are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In some courts, only people who are charged with misdemeanors are eligible. In some jurisdictions, people who are charged with crimes of violence and or sex offenses are not eligible. But be that as it may, the goal is that These people will be on a specialized docket with a judge who understands the nuances of various mental illnesses, and in particular in the cases of veterans, veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury. And in most of these courts, if people complete all of the requirements that are set out for them, the charges will be dismissed and or severely reduced. And make no mistake, these courts are difficult. They are very, very difficult because usually... If you are under their supervision, you as a defendant have to come back to court probably on a monthly basis and speak one-on-one to the judge about your progress or perhaps the things that, that you have done wrong. These judges theoretically know you intimately and they have a very good understanding of what led you to their docket and a good understanding of what things you need in your life, not only to be successful on that docket, but hopefully to stay out of the courthouse after the case is disposed of. So if you find yourself representing a client that you discover there's a mental disability that hasn't previously been considered Mm -hmm. in, you know, as they're being introduced into the criminal justice system. What are those first steps that you take? What if you don't have experience in representing someone with mental disabilities? As, As attorneys, we all have relatively good instincts, if you will, about someone who is a bit off. And it varies from disability to disability as to recognizing different 
red flags. It's very easy, for instance, when you are assigned a client or given a client or retained by a client, if that accused person and or family presents you with volumes of prior psychological evaluations, offers that the person has been in special education courses, is um, is receiving SSI, what have you. But you may have someone for whom the red flags are a bit more subtle. Indeed, doesn't even seem like a red flag. So if you have someone who has an intellectual or developmental disability, you need to realize that that person has probably spent many years of his or her life trying to mask that disability in order not to be preyed upon or laughed at by people in the school, by the neighborhood, in in the workplace. So your questions as an attorney, not only in the initial uh, interview, but subsequently need to be open-ended. And you need to give that client, that accused person, the opportunity to answer in full sentences and paragraphs, if possible, rather than giving the person an answer and then just saying, do you understand? Because he or she will probably say yes, and you will assume he or she understands, and then you will move on. If, on the other hand, you have a client who is floridly psychotic, that's another that's another issue. The red flags are blazing. So if you meet someone for the first time in the jail and you are discussing trial strategy or representation strategy and that person tells you that he or she wants you to subpoena the president, the vice president, the director of the CIA, you know that uh, uh, a competency and or sanity evaluation is in order. This is a tremendously involved issue, and for every type of disability, I can give you different scenarios, but that's a general answer to your question. Thank you. I think one last question I have for you is implied in how deliberate you are in establishing the right terminology. that implies there's still room with how we're addressing mental disabilities in the criminal justice system in that there needs to be more space for accommodating these other groups, not just those with mental illness. Is that, is that the case or am I inferring too much? Well, you raise an important point, and that is as deliberate as I try and be with my terminology. At the same time, I am very sensitive to the fact that there are some people out there who have what we call dual diagnosis. Um, so, for instance, you can have a person with an intellectual and developmental disability growing up, and then late teens early 20s start to develop symptoms of schizophrenia. There are many, many people on the autism spectrum who are bullied growing up. 
So as adults, or even as children and adolescents, they could suffer symptoms of anxiety and depression. And beyond that, depending upon when a person is evaluated by an expert, the diagnoses can change, not only because that person evolves, but you just have a different lens examining that person. Mm -hmm. So I'm also wondering specifically, or I'm reflecting on the question you posed to a panelist at the Nashville Spring Meeting for the section about a diversion center that's being developed in Nashville, asking about who is included in the group that gets diverted to that court. And that's more of where my question is rooted in, is just wondering, is the system accommodating, you know, all these alternative diversion programs, these alternative courts, these problem-solving courts, right now are they just addressing mental illness, or are you seeing space for mental disabilities in these alternative programs? Well, it again, it depends upon the jurisdiction. So, for instance, in many jurisdictions, the term mental health court accommodates both people with mental illness as well as people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The question that you alluded to was one I posed yesterday to the county sheriff here in Nashville because he was passionate about diverting people with mental illness out of the criminal justice system. And he repeatedly used the term mental illness. And he was talking about a diversion center that his office had just constructed. So during the Q&A, I asked him if it would accommodate people with intellectual and developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorders. And at this point in time, he said it didn't. But when he said it didn't, his reason is one that I understand. He is trying to take small steps. So right now, the, the facility is only open to people who are charged with misdemeanors. And I went up to him afterwards and I explained to him the reason why I was concerned was because we know that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities do not do well in prisons and jails. Sometimes they act out the symptoms of their disability and are punished, i.e. they're put into solitary, which exacerbates their symptoms. Sometimes they're preyed upon by other people in the facility who are much, much more streetwise and calculating. And sometimes they just have a fundamental inability to follow the rules and regulations of that environment. So again, they're punished. But I want to believe that all of the people out there who are trying to come up with ways to serve this population, divert this population out of the system are very well intended, but they are also fighting funding challenges and they're trying to not bite off more than they can chew and they're trying to start small so then they can expand. 
Well, thank you for clarifying that. There's a lot to unpack in this issue. And a lot of that can be found in your book. I don't think I actually said the title for our listeners. The title of this book is Representing People with Mental Disabilities, a Practical Guide for Criminal Defense Lawyers. And the editor is Elizabeth Kelly. So that can be found on the ABA Publications Library. So you can look for it there. But otherwise, I'd like to thank Elizabeth for joining us on our podcast today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. 